Well, good morning, everybody, whether you're watching online or battled the elements to get here. Um, you've spoiled my opening line because I was about to say <laughs> that you'll be disappointed to know that we're not going on with Hebrews this week, um, uh, especially after the last few weeks. Um, but today's title is For Such a Time as This. And with a title like that, I wonder what you're expecting. Maybe a message from the book of Esther? It's certainly a challenging book with no mention of God or prayer, but now I've just borrowed the phrase from there. Perhaps an encouragement to be up and here early at 10.30, um, or perhaps some thoughts on change and transition as we move back for West Watford, but it's none of those. When Andy asked me a couple of weeks ago to put some sort of biblical framework around the extraordinary outreach that this church now has to Afghans arriving in here, and the whole refugee issue, I was a bit reticent at first, because I thought, oh, people think it's Marion banging on about her thing, or they'll think, oh, it's a half-term filler. Um, but he was quite right, no surprise there. <laughs> um, first, because it isn't my thing, it's God's thing. But secondly, because everything we do as a church has to come under the scrutiny of Scripture, has to be seen through the lens of Scripture, and scripture itself wasn't written in a vacuum. It's written in a cultural context, a linguistic context, a world context. We tend to view scripture through the lens of our own culture, our own language, our perception of the world. Whereas actually we need to flip it and see our culture, our language, our world and what's happening in it through, in and through the lens of scripture. But more than that, and particularly in view of some of the songs we've sung this morning, we need to recognise that whatever we see and understand is only a small part of what's going on, the microcosm. Above and beyond that is the macrocosm. That's for all our, my Tuesday nighters. Um, the context of a God who is outside of space and time, who sees a much bigger picture than any of us can perceive or hope to see, even with all our advanced technology. He is the God who says, hopefully, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. As time goes by, I find myself more comfortable with mystery as I wrestle with the ideas of divine providence, how God is working in my life and in the lives of those around me and in the world at large. I'm happy to say I don't understand. I can't put God in a nice little pot box and parcel him up for you for Christmas. But before we turn to scripture and the subject of refugees, I want to give a little bit of context to what's happening right on our doorstep. According to the latest reliable figures, and reliable figures are important, drawn up by the United Nations High Commission for Refugees at the end of 2020, so at the end of last year, there are 82.4 million displaced people in the world today. That's one and a half times the whole UK population or the whole population of Turkey. 35 million of them are children. 
Numbers have only grown this year, especially with the Afghan crisis. We used to say last year that 42,500 people were displaced every day. That's the figure we're looking at. 48 million are internally displaced in places like Sudan, Algeria, China, and increasingly in Afghanistan. But in contrast, last year, only 34,000 refugees were resettled worldwide. 250,000 were returned to their homes, some wanting to, some not wanting to. And we need to remind ourselves that the issue is not a new one. People think there was no refugee crisis until it came to Europe. Well, sorry, 40 years ago, the Sahrawi camp in Algeria was started, and it now houses 174 refugees. One young man burying his father there said, My father lived and died in this camp. I was born in this camp. Will I too die here? So we need to get a perspective on what we call a crisis in Europe. And we're experiencing just really the tip of the problem, but we are. And the reality is that 85% of the world's refugees are hosted by the developing, in other words, the poorest nations, headed up by Turkey, Palestine and Lebanon. I met some folk, in fact, from the heart of Lebanon, which is a Christian agency set up to handle the Syrian influx when Syria imploded and everybody <coughs> left. And they said it feels like being invaded again. If you remember, Syria occupied Lebanon for a number of years. But nevertheless, Christians put themselves out to welcome them. And one pastor there asked his congregation not to come to church one week because there were too many Muslims coming who wanted to know about Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if one day we, Andy said, don't come to church this next week, not enough room for you, too many looking for Jesus. But enough uh, statistics. The crisis exists and there are three possible responses. There's a political response. People thinking about, do they close borders? How many should they take? How much money should they invest in this? There's the social response setting up welcome groups, language classes, integration centres. But for us, as the family of God, we need to be asked, is there a specific Christian response? And if so, how does that impact you and me? How does it impact us? And first, we need to be careful of our definitions. We will get to the Bible eventually, but I do want, to, I do want you to have a, a good sense of what it's about. So here are some definitions, because these words are bandied around rather liberally. So a refugee is someone who has been forced to flee his or her country because of persecution, war or violence, and who, owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion, is outside of the country of his nationality and cannot return or is afraid to do so. It's quite a comprehensive definition, but that's what we're all working to. An asylum seeker on the guy is someone who says he's a refugee or she, but his claim has not been definitively evaluated. Okay? And undeclared asylum seekers are people who haven't yet applied for refugee status. And you could add to that international displaced people, but we won't go there. Well, this has been called a crisis. The Chinese word for crisis has two components, danger and opportunity. How will we as Christians view 
this particular crisis? Will we view it as a danger, a threat to our existing way of life, and or an opportunity, a movement created by God to welcome people in his kingdom? That's the challenge to us. For 15 years or so, Brian and I worked with an organisation called Arab World Ministries, seeking to take the gospel into the Arab world. People went in as uh, business people, but they were there to reach people. And Syria was one of the hardest places to get anybody into. And what happened? Syrians came here in their thousands seeking sanctuary and wanting to know Jesus. But it would be wrong for us to see this merely as an opportunity to evangelise. This is not about a means to an end. We love people and we accept them because that's the right thing to do. Who was a refugee in the Bible? I wonder if you can... Normally I would get you to feedback, but I don't think Christ first very comfortable with doing that. <laughs> Who do you think was a refugee in the Bible? Jesus, indeed. Jesus... Abraham, Moses. Moses, quite a few of them. Yeah, we tend to leave the Jeep, that bit out of the Christmas story, the Jesus refugee bit, when he fled because of the slaughter of the innocents. And they must have been terrified as they fled with this small child, looking over their shoulders to see if anybody was following. And whom did they know in Egypt? No one. But somebody must have taken them in and given them housing and shelter and clothing and food, but they're not mentioned in the Gospel accounts anywhere. And other refugees in the Bible, we've already had, Cain had to find a city of refuge. Hagar was driven with her young son into the desert by Sarah. Joseph is trafficked into slavery. Moses flees the justice of Egypt. David flees from Saul and lives as an outlaw. The whole of Israel is deported after the Assyrian invasion. Aquila and Priscilla were driven there from their home by persecution. But you won't find the word refugee in the Bible, but you will find a lot about foreigners, strangers, sojourners. And we're going to look at three things that the Bible says about the stranger. Firstly, that we are to act justly and to show empathy. Act justly, show empathy. And here we've got three quotations. Jeremiah 22.2. Do what is right. Reminds me of Micah. Do not mistreat foreigners, orphans and widows. Zechariah. Judge fairly and show mercy and kindness to one another. Do not oppress widows, orphans foreigners and the poor. Exodus 23.9, do not oppress a foreigner. You yourself knows how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. So again, two or three times we get that do what is right. Not what is convenient, but do what is right. Act justly. There's a very strong theme through the Bible of justice. But then it says, don't mistreat foreigners. And twice it uses that word, don't, bird, don't oppress them. And that word oppress them means burden them. Do not place a burden on them. So the question comes, how, do we how might we burden a foreigner? 
Well, sometimes it can be expecting too much of them too soon. You know, well, you're here, you're safe now. Isn't it about time that you've got up off your backside and got a job or something? That's a burden. Not recognising the extent of their trauma and grief. We have a very flippant way of talking about trauma in the West. You know, oh, I had a traumatic week. The washing machine broke down. The dog got sick, you know. And, and that's not trauma <laughs> when you've escaped bullets when your child has been bombed. So underestimating the impact of trauma and of grief. These are people with multiple losses, multiple grief, so much loss. Men, and feeling totally isolated, you're in a place where no one speaks your language. Many speak of feeling unwanted, unaccepted, of people talking to them, oh, you're placing a burden on the state. You're depriving existing nationals of services and what they can have. But people don't just arrive here. People are sent here by Jesus. In John's Gospel, chapter 20, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. It's a bit convoluted, this bit. But there's a different word between Jesus saying, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. That sending you, it means forwarding on. You know when you have a letter that arrives at your doorstep? and it's somebody who used to live there, and you forward it on. Jesus says, I'm forwarding you on. You're going in my place, I'm forwarding you on. I think the flip side of that is that he forwards people on to us. Uh, we're going to be dipping in and out of the parable of the Good Samaritan, and many people have said that in that parable, Jesus is the Good Samaritan, the one who takes care of the lost and the broken, and brings them to the innkeeper who represents us. In other words, Jesus says, here are these people that have come to me. I am now entrusting them to your care. So God is already at work in the lives of those he brings to us. Let me tell you the story of Yasmin. Yasmin fled Iran after her brother and father were imprisoned and her life was threatened. None of them were Christians. She arrived in Belgium thoroughly disillusioned with God, religion, the lot. She was met by some Christians, and one particular older couple got to know her, gave her hospitality, supported her. But she made it quite clear to them that she wanted nothing to do with their God. She'd had enough of religion. Fine, they said. They accepted her as she was. As time went by, she would occasionally go to church with them, just to please them. But while this was happening, she'd go out in the woods nearby and rage at this God she didn't believe in for all the terrible things that were happening. Well, fast forward several months, quite a long time, and one night she went to church with them, and as she knelt for, for the prayer, she said, suddenly I could see Jesus. There he was in front of me, holding out his hands, and I knew that all I wanted to do was to run to him and be in his arms. And then I looked again, and he was standing in the woods where I'd been doing my ranting. So all the time I was raging at a God I didn't believe in, Jesus was there listening to me and waiting for me to see him. God is at work in the lives of people that he brings to us, not just refugees. Anybody that God brings to us, God is already at work. We haven't seen it. Last week, Tom said how important it was for us to know our Old Testament because 
what was said there still applies and is a precursor to what Jesus brought in the New Testament, hence those three scriptures. And that last one says, you knew what it was like to be a foreigner in Egypt. In other words, he's saying, put yourself in their shoes. You know what it's like to be a foreigner. You can have empathy. You should be able to put yourself where they are and understand that. Now, that's not true for most of us. Most of us don't, haven't had that experience. But it doesn't mean to say we can't do it. And here we go back to Hebrews, isn't that lovely? Because Hebrews tells us how to, an example of how to do this in 13.3. Remember those in prison as if you were bound with them. All right? He's saying think about people in prison. And remember, this is prison a long time before our prisons. What was it like? What were they afraid of? How did they feel? as if you were there. I think we might alter it and say, remember those who have fled as if you had fled with them. Put yourself in their shoes. What are they feeling like? So act justly and show empathy. And the second one, treat them as citizens and with love. In Leviticus, we read, the foreigners residing among you must be treated as native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Now, in Moses' day, to treat the stranger, the uncircumcised, one who was not of the people of Israel, as native-born, would have been truly shocking. I mean, they would have dropped their jaws at this instruction. Treat them as native-born. Our country culture is slightly more accepting these days, but so we perhaps don't realise how revolutionary this command is. And again, it's an Old Testament command, but it's the command of the I am. That's what God, how God reminds us, it's the command of the I am. And of course, this is taken up in the New Testament by Jesus, who self-identifies as the I am in John 8, 15, he is the I am, and he says in Luke 20, 10, 27, love your neighbor as yourself, followed by the parable of the Good Samaritan, to which we've already referred. Now, one thing that's very interesting in that parable is the words used about the Pharisee, the Levite, and the Samaritan stopping. You remember, they all stopped. The first two are said to have passed by without being disturbed. It's one word, but they passed by without being disturbed. They didn't let what they saw affect them or distract them from the business they were on, which was the business of the temple. Of the good Samaritan, it says, he came alongside and he got close enough to see the situation of the man, to see what his needs were and to do something about it. So when ministering to refugees, we're following in Christ's footsteps as well as the encouragement of the Old Testament. We read... The Lord protects the foreigners. He shows love to the foreigners among you and gives them food and clothing. How does God give them food and clothing if not through his people? He didn't drop it from heaven. Somehow, God gave them food and clothing through his people. And I think, moreover, the other thing about remembering about refugees being here is to remind us that we are also those who are travelling. 
he says, Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, 19, now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens with God's people. We were strangers and foreigners to God. Now we're part of God's people. So we have exchanged a citizenship from a worldly identity to being citizens of a heavenly country. Peter reminds us that we're sojourners and pilgrims in 1 Peter 2.11. Refugees in our midst should remind us that we're on a pilgrimage, on a journey. We are not at our final destination. We shouldn't become too fixed on this earth or any one place in it. We are too on a journey, ready to move when God tells us to move. So act justly, show empathy, treat them as citizens and with love, and thirdly, show hospitality. Now we're back in Hebrews again. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. A reference to the story in Genesis 18, 1 to 15, where Abraham entertains two strangers and discovers not till they leave that they are angels. Now, many of us are familiar with the term xenophobia. In fact, Dan alluded to it in his prayer, the fear of strangers, or as it's become almost the hatred of strangers, the foreigner. In Greek, the word for hospitality is philoxenia, the love of the foreigner. Now, hospitality isn't when you have your friends around for a meal. It's when you have the stranger around. I love having people around for a meal. I love having you guys around for meals. It's great. But that's because we're family, and we should be in and out of each other's houses. That's the natural thing that families do. But let's not kid ourselves that that's hospitality in the biblical sense. The biblical sense of hospitality is entertaining the stranger, opening your home up to the stranger, because it's not just about food, although food's a very important part of it, certainly if you come from Afghanistan, but it's opening up to the stranger. And our Afghan friends come from a society where hospitality is a very, very important um, value, which is why being in a hotel where you can't exercise it is really hard. One lady, one lady invited me into her room, right? She's got four children. But, so in this room, there's a double bed, there's a, there's a cabinet, and there's a wardrobe, you know, and she says, then one chair. So she sits me on the chair, and then she brought out, and then she scrabbled in the drawer and brought out a plate of, of dates and nuts and things, and would I like tea, you know? So there I am in this bedroom with her sitting on the bed and the child rolling around the bed, experiencing hospitality. But that was, that was her value, that was, and that gave her a real joy to be able to uh, exercise it. And hospitality is not just about giving and blessing, but actually you are blessed when you give. It says, doesn't it, it's more blessed to, to, to give than to receive. The giver is the one who is blessed. Giving hospitality is a blessing. And Jesus sums it all up in Matthew chapter 25, and Anya's just going to come and read that to us. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, 
Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you for the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, just as you did to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will say to them, Truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Challenging stuff, isn't it? It's when we show love that people sit up and take notice and start to ask questions. That's what promotes it. Let me tell you about my friend Nikos in Greece. Nikos and his group, Helping Hands, regularly provide showers, food and washing facilities for refugees. At the end of a meal for 800 Afghans, an Afghan lady came to him and said, I want someone to tell me about Jesus. So he took her to an office with a female colleague and said, well, what do you know about Jesus? And she said, I don't know much about Jesus, but as I was watching the way you treat each other and the way you take care of the refugees, a deep desire grew in me to know and to believe in this Jesus in whom you believe. Love leads to action and faith follows. As we look to apply this, let me ask you a question. I wonder what the word home means to you. Somebody once said to me, home is a place you can leave from and come back to. There's that sense of a belonging. Five years ago, Brian and I moved from the family home where we'd lived for 35 years, which had lots of memories. It was the place we brought our kids up. We had neighbours and friends and a church community. <coughs> it was painful, but it was a decision we made in order to be near our kids. And it was our choice. And our new house has become our home. We live near the kids and we found new friends and a new lovely church family. But think how different it would have been had a bomb struck our village, destroyed my home with my husband and two children under it, and all the houses around me had the same fate. How would that have impacted me? Well, I'd have had a loss of identity. I'd be a widow, not a wife. A loss of place doesn't exist anymore. My memories have gone. I can't revisit them. A loss of community. 
Many of those I lived with are killed, and those not killed are scattered. A loss of spiritual connection, my church and its family have gone. And that's where many refugees are when they arrive, mourning multiple losses and no way to say goodbye properly to people and places. They've had to rush it. A loss of identity, their personal identity, their status, their job, their friendships, their nationality ceases to have as much. It's been interesting watching them, the men uh, support the cricket team recently because that's really given them a, a sense again of their nationality, but they've lost all that. Loss of place, everything they knew as home, shops, neighbourhood, parks, schools. Loss of community, this is a group culture where people do things together. Extended families live together. Grief is not something private. Grief is something you do with everybody else. Then there are rituals whereby you process your grief in the community. A loss of spiritual connection. Islam is a very legalistic religion much in the ways that parts of Judaism. God is not a personal God. Among the 99 names of Allah, you will not find Father. But people have a need for personal spiritual connection. So in many parts of the world, you will find what's known as folk Islam. Saints, peers, marabouts, holy places, places that people visit when they have have their personal needs met, childlessness, illness, or whatever. A place for spiritual connection. When you're taken away from that place, you've lost your, literally, your place of spiritual connection. So what are they looking for when they arrive? A way to find their identity. Who are they in this new place, this new situation, a new language? So much of our identity is tied up in our language. A new place of belonging. They want somewhere to put down their roots, to find acceptance a new community, people to support them, and rituals to help process grief, a new place of spiritual connection. Does that remind you of anywhere? Or anywhere where you ought to be? Isn't that what a church should be? Isn't that what we're about? As God's people, our identity doesn't come, we learn our identity is not what we do or where we live or much, how much we have or where we're from. Our primary identity is being a child of God. That's my first identity. When everything else has been taken away from me, I remain a child of God. That's my anchoring. A place of belonging. We're told, aren't we, in Christ we are neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, all are one in Christ. In Christ is a place where everyone finds acceptance unconditionally. Community, the body of Christ on earth, people to be with us, people who will weep with us when we weep, who rejoice with we rejoice. That's what being the people of God together is. A place of personal spiritual connection. Because, yes, I'm connected, but I'm connected to God through you as well. You help me in my connection with God. When I come here, I don't just sit there and consume what's happened. I find connection with God together. This is what one refugee believer had to say. They welcomed me with an open heart at this church. It was not so much about the material help, 
They're given medical assistance, food, shelter, clothes, and taught English. But about the emotional help I received, and it has made me feel connected to Jesus. This religion is so much more accepting in Christianity, I feel peace. I wonder if you've ever heard of the word kairos. <clears throat> I do believe there are kairos moments in history, a turning point driven by an event of great magnitude. So a kairos moment is the right moment, the right spot, a favourable moment, an opportunity, the point of time which is affected by human decisions. It's a point of time which demands action. It's the now moment. This is, this is now, and you can do it now or not at all. It's the space and time in which many decisions are made and which one must dare to exploit. Or as one person said, it's the will to seize the moment. And there are kairos moments. One was in the Bible, is in Galatians 4.4, where we read, at the right time God sent his son. Right? And if there was ever a turning point in history, it was that one. But God chose his time. He could have sent Jesus at any time. But at the right moment, at that critical time, he sent his son. Movements of people, global upheaval, catastrophes create kairos moments. Moments that are there to be exploited. Moments which are opportunities. It goes back to our crisis, danger, opportunity. In Acts 8, the church was scattered and what happened, the gospel reached far greater than it would have if it had stayed in Jerusalem. Elam Ministries says this. Elam works with a lot of Iranian and Afghan people, so it's really the Dari um, Farsi link. They said, listen to this, we have seen that when a refugee from Iran or Afghanistan becomes a Christian in Europe, soon they begin sharing the gospel with their friends and relatives back in their home countries. We estimate that for every new Persian Dari-speaking believer in Europe, at least 10 people are likely to be reached for Christ inside Iran or Afghanistan. But we love because it's the right thing to do. And God uses the channel of love to speak. I had a conversation uh, on Zoom the other week with Mathieu over in Zimbabwe. And he reminded me that just before COVID, as a church, we'd been talking about looking, how can we be a church that reaches out? We wanted to not just look in, but we wanted to look out. And as the two of us mused and wondered about that, we wondered whether God sending the Afghans to us was God's way of answering that desire to reach out. Well, okay, here you are. Here's your Kairos moment. Are you ready to take it? But what next? This is a wave. This will not be, for, hopefully, for the next, we hope no more than six months. But what next? When the wave is over, where will God lead us to be a missional church? How will he use it? Are we ready to say yes? Are we ready to look for the next Kairos moment and say to God, yes, we hear the call. So the three ways of serving the refugees, but then looking at how we respond, crisis or opportunity. Can we see what is happening as Watford as a Kairos moment for Christ first? 
has he brought us together for such a time as this? I'm going to pray, and then in a moment we're going to take some time to reflect on what God is saying to us as Ruth leads us in worship, and then Tom will lead us in response. But let's just pause for a moment. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who first loved us and reached down to us and sent your Son and brought us into your presence, that we were strangers to you, barred from your presence. But now the door's open, Lord, and we can walk into your presence, and we thank you so much for being such a generous God. And we pray, Father, that you will give to us that heart of yours, that heart of compassion, that heart which breaks for this suffering world. Well, not just for the refugee, but for those we live amongst who are lost and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Father, teach us to love as you love. Teach us to follow your ways, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.